Hey everyone, and welcome back to Two Feet Apart with me, your host, Peachy Patra. Today's episode was incredible. It's one of those ones, don't get me wrong, all of them are like this, um, that my family is all going to hear about the entire time I called them in about 15 minutes when I walk the dogs. Um, I'm sure they get tired of it because God bless their souls. They also listen to almost every episode and they have to hear me talk about it every time we finish recording. But such amazing content, such incredible conversations. I am continuously so grateful for everyone that spends their time and energy sharing their experiences and having these conversations with me for you guys to listen to. Um, today we had Michelle Hughes. She's an FASD advocate. She's raising a son that has FASD. She's a conversation starter and a change maker. And that's all you need to know. Get ready. Alcohol, um, went up 37% in sales in Ontario in the first month. Yeah. Of the pandemic. Are you telling me we're not going to have some, uh, alcohol impacted births happening? Especially because people are stuck in houses together. Like, of course. Yes, but it's okay. But it's weird when you're, you're going to talk about having, drinking alcohol, taboo, very normalized, but taboo if it's anything other than I drink to have a good time. But yes. if I drink to numb my feelings, if I drink because I'm stressed, if I drink because that's all I know, or I was modeled that, stigma. And then if we talk about people having unprotected, we even talk about is such a taboo subject in 2020. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. And so I think that when I watch what my son goes through and I've met so many adults living with an FASD and a lot of parents of kids with an FASD, and we just think it's not an easy solution, mm -hmm. but our kids need so much more support. And when I do, I've been in programming for years. I mean, I worked in long-term care and I have now can go back in my career and know these residents who have these same things that happened and their family history that leads me to believe it could be an FASD, but we treat it just as dementia. And yes. you have, I'm not saying everyone has an FASD. That is not what my message is, but it's so hard to specifically diagnose. And there's not a lot of money for dollars, you know, in Waterloo region, last I knew we were able to diagnose 10 kids a year. Wow. 10 kids a year. That's not a lot. And if you're over the age of 18, there's not a lot of opportunity for you to get that covered by OHIP. No. So, you know, so we kind of operate on the, if somebody comes and says, you know, I think my child and this is what happens. If it looks like an FASD and acts like an FASD, let's look at some ways that we can approach it and support you. Doesn't mean you have it, but if that works, because a lot of what happens in the neuro-based approaches, strength-based, looking at being a snowplow, then we can support people. But I just think society as a whole has a real lot of learning and unlearning to do around mm -hmm. FASD, which has kind of just driven me. Yeah. You know, it's driven a whole new world for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when you're, like I was saying earlier, once your eyes are open to it, you can't just close it. You're like, now I'm angry. So now I need to do something. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And the number of times I've met kids and I'm like that, feels like an FASD to me, but we're just going to treat all the kids the same, you know, uh, where we work. Um, we did a full training the first time this group of people have ever had FASD training. Wow. Um, my son went to summer camp in our city and, um, years ago I reached out to the city of Cambridge who does amazing inclusion services. 
Um, and I said, hey, this is my friend, Karen Huber. She is the FASD coordinator for Waterloo Region. And I think she needs to come and talk to your team. And they were like, this is awesome. You know, um, people are more open to it more than ever. And I think we do really well in the region we live in. We do really, really well. Yeah. Um, I'm really proud of the work we do here. It makes me really happy. But, you know, the fact that I went to school for therapeutic recreation and had never heard of FASD, the first time I heard of FASD was on an episode of Dateline um, where a kid, you know, stabbed his parents while they were sleeping because he had fetal alcohol syndrome. So we've had a lot of progression in FASD and its terms and terminologies, but uh, um, I think the best resource if people are listening is CAN FASD, C-A-N FASD. They have the most broad research. They're um, amazing. And uh, Canada has come a long way with their research and their, and their advocacy. But, you know, I only thought of that. And when I started looking at adoption, I had a really close girlfriend who was also looking at adoption. And she's an amazing, amazing single mom. And she had a family member who worked in a, in a family and children's services organization. And what they were looking for in a physical feature was actually screening for an FASD because it's so fearful to people. Mm -hmm. And that breaks my heart now every time I think about it because kids need a home and mm -hmm. it's not easy. And every single kid with FASD is different. It's like that saying, you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. You don't yes. know yes. everyone with autism. And it's the same with FASD. And it breaks my heart that, you know, we equate FASD with kids in care only most of the time. And that people are so fearful of it because it is hard. It is hard, hard, hard work. But we have done so many great things and so many great things are coming. And um, none of us are perfect at it. But once you find a supportive group of people, once you make some connections, you could really, you could be okay. You mm -hmm. could be okay. And yeah. I say that, I go into phases where I'm like, oh, it's great. And then the wheels fall off the bus for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but once I turned 40, I really understood asking for help. And I really understood that um, the wheels are falling off the bus. You know, I had a really great career in the long-term care and retirement home sector. And I had to walk away from it because I knew I couldn't manage the needs uh, and serve the, serve the team I worked with and serve the residents and their families the way I loved doing and meet my son's needs at the same time. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of changes. There's a lot of grief process for for parents of kids with FASD. And that's when I do speaking engagements, um, I mostly speak about the grief and loss process, um, leveraging the strengths over the negatives. And I talk a lot about um, being okay to talk about the grief because people think grief is death, but grief is yes. change, yes. grief is loss, and grief is managing expectations. But it's not always doom and gloom. And I have a very morbid sense of humor, so sometimes that helps. <laughs> It, it does. It's very helpful. And yeah. I remember I had a therapist that once said, you know, when you're experiencing grief with certain things, it's not that, you know, you're grieving, like you said, it's not always that you're grieving the death of something or someone or anything like that. Like she said, for me to my experience that we were speaking about was that I was grieving the gap and it's the gap of kind of what you thought versus reality. And just that space in between can be a lot on people. And I don't think people really recognize or honor that, but it can be, um, there's even that other quote that's like, grief is love with no place to go. And it's true because it's, and that can be applied to so many different things. It's not just like, oh, I loved my mom and she passed away. So now I have nowhere to put that love. So it's all in me. No, it can be reflected in anything. Um, yeah. 
And so I think once you honor that and you start actively working towards that and love to different people looks like a lot of different things. Um, and so it can be very dynamic for me that love would be kind of putting that energy towards educating myself and towards challenging myself um, and doing things like that. But for different people, it's completely different. And, you know, so I totally understand that whole concept of just, you know, a lot. that's a lot of the process and people don't really realize that. And people almost use grief as like a bad word, like don't say it or don't feel it or, you know, if you were to tell, like, if I was to ever tell someone I was grieving, they'd be like, are you okay? Like, do you need to go to therapist? Like what's, and people don't understand that it's a natural human emotion that occurs so frequently. Absolutely. And the shame we equate with it. Mm -hmm. If someone hasn't died and I still do this, my mother's sister died. That is my aunt. But I say my mom's sister died and people are like, oh my gosh. And like in COVID, my grandmother died. And we knew she was going to pass. She lived in a long-term care home. We couldn't be with her when she died. I'm someone who worked in long-term care for 20 years. I have sat with many a person as they left this earth. And I can't be with my grandmother, but I find myself minimizing it. I find myself, because I, I preemptively think of people's responses, they're going to be, well, she lived a good life. She was 90, like 93. She was still my nan. She was alone when she died. My aunt, my mom's sister. Yes, she was my mom's sister, but it was my aunt. And she was young. To me, 75 is young. Mm -hmm. And she was a single woman and she had to go to a hospital and downtown Toronto, we couldn't get there because COVID only gives you a window. But we minimize it or we just don't want people to see our vulnerability. But with parenting a child with special needs, that grief is exactly what you said, Petra. It is, we know that things aren't going to be the way we designed them in our minds, the way everything should go. Mm -hmm. Or those things where, some people can just send their kids off to school. I'm not talking about COVID because every parent right now is stressed. Don't let them tell you otherwise. Mm -hmm. But that thing where you can just send your kid off to school and not have to think about the labels in their clothes. Are those the right socks? Did I give him his medication this morning? Is this the right dose of medication? Is that kid that triggers him going to be in the class? Oh my gosh, today is friends. Like you're on alert all the time. I got to a point where um, my son had a really tumultuous year last year before COVID. And I was at a meeting across town. One of the reasons I took the job I have is because I'm five minutes from home and five mm -hmm. minutes from school. Because when something happens, my philosophy is I go get him. And I was only a few minutes away and I wanted to, I got a call and I wasn't five minutes away. But as soon as that call comes, my instant reaction was tears because I'm afraid for him. And that tears for me are a default response. Some people don't cry. And things that people say to you over the years are, oh, I don't cry, you know. So somehow we internalize them. We don't realize we're doing it. But my tears are my stress and anxiety and my fear that I can't put superpowers on and fly to that school. I got to mm -hmm. sit in traffic and that 10 minutes feels like 25 minutes. And the grief of, you know, the everyday challenges, you know, my husband and I are very sarcastic people. The brain of a person with FASD is exceptionally literal. Mm -hmm. The literal brain doesn't give you space to joke. So you are, it's not that my son's correcting me, but I've often taken it as stop correcting me. It's his brain going, that doesn't make sense to me. Yes. So you have to then work through that. The way your family operates, you know, just going somewhere for a weekend is a feat and a half sometimes, you know, and there are every one of us have, have families of kids with, and parents and adults, caregivers. We have a lot of grandparents in our FASD community raising their grandchildren. And that's the part that we finally get to when people are 
either, you know, they're in the early process and trying to manage and they just think that they're tired. Oh, you are tired, but you're grieving and we're going to give you some space to grieve. And then you see people who have been doing this for a long time. You know, they put all the effort into the preschool years and then the elementary years and then the junior high years get really trying. And those preteen and teen years are a real transitional phase because of a lot of dismaturity. And then by the time high school comes, you got nothing left. Mm -hmm. So now you come across as this oppositional parent who doesn't give a rat's, but you do, you got nothing left in your tank. And so part of what my, I have some great co-facilitators rather, and we run a support group for caregivers in Waterloo Region as caregivers, and we want to create a safe space for people to have those conversations. We're not sitting around having, you know, raindrops and rainbows and lollipop conversations. We're like, I'm at the, I'm at my wit's end. Who can help me and who can relate to me? And mm -hmm. once I started to find people who I could talk to about things, my world changed. You know, we're sitting in a support group and one woman came in and she's like, I told the woman who referred her to it, if I get in there and it's a bunch of people who have kids who are nine and 10 years old, I don't want to hear it. And I have a 15 year old and what do I do? And one of my, my co-facilitators put her hand up and said, hey, I've lived through that and it's really shitty. And if you want to exchange numbers, I can. And I started to cry. <laughs> Because I'm like, this is the space between two people. You know, we're all struggling in our own little world and our families do our best to support us. And a lot of people don't have the family support because they raise their kids a certain way. And when our kids are with them, they don't see what we see. Mm -hmm. Or they're like, I don't know if your kid can come over because it's a little disruptive to our house and you internalize that. Um, and so that grief. And the first time I went to this parent panel, it was a whole day FASD learning session and there was a parent panel at the end and my son was four and I was so excited I'm going to have a parent panel and I waited all day and then I put up my hand and I said I'm really excited I'm having some problems with discipline I'm starting to understand this brain connection it's not discipline it's not defiance it's not opposition it's the way his brain is relating what would you say and the one woman on the panel said meds meds and more meds and I was like Ooh. And uh, one of the prominent psychologists was in the audience looking at me going, shaking your head, no, no, no. And then another parent said, you know, you're going to lose all your friends. You can't go anywhere. This is what our sons do. And I was angry. I left there angry. And in the past couple of years, probably about four years ago, I went, oh my gosh, I'm not angry at them anymore. They were so deep in grief. They didn't have the support system. And their support system came too late of people who were commiserating with them and if that was support that's totally fine no judgment but what if we could create a space where we could have conversations and when I say to you I'm so tired and I don't know what to do and I lock myself in the bathroom with my phone for an hour and pretend I'm having a bath and somebody goes oh my god me too do you take chips with you because I take snacks <laughs> <laughs> you know or you know, I, I, I said something to one of my fellow moms in the, in the group and I said, you know, I had just lost my shit last night. And she's like, listen, I got to tell you the story. She told me the story. I laughed so hard. I had tears streaming down my face. And she's like, we're all the same. I think we just all put on airs because of internal shame or guilt or societal norms. And there's not, there's no need for it. No, no, not at all. And it's amazing that once you recognize that those conversations are important, how much of an advocate you become for them yeah. and how much that communication and just that extra level 
makes a big difference and you're so much more conscientious and that's something that you start to actively implement all the time. You just want to have those conversations and be able to have that space. And it becomes like to a point, like for me, once I hit a certain point of educating myself and trying to learn and um, just doing this work and everything like that, it came to the point where I was like, I can't have conversations that aren't respectful of all of these beliefs because you know, you have those situations where you're younger and say like you're going on a date with a guy and he, totally doesn't fit your beliefs but you're like well he's cute I'm gonna do it anyway now I'm like I I don't even sit before there was a phase where I was like oh it's fine he's good looking whatever and then there was a phase where it was like okay well I didn't really like that so I probably won't see you again and now I'll straight up be like I don't really agree with what you said and here's why or you know I'll explain kind of a counter argument and allow the space for the curiosity and allow the space for them to ask questions and be willing to provide resources, but just knowing that once you hit that certain point, you're like, I can't just go knowing that I could have educated this person or knowing that, and it's not always our responsibility to educate other people. And I've learned also that people won't learn if you don't want them to. There's some situations where I'm just like, I'm just not going to say anything because I know that it would be harder on me to try and defend my argument than it would be to try and teach this person because they're not receptive to it. And so it's also recognizing that, but just being able to have those conversations and recognize that difference in relationship dynamic and prioritizing that like, instead of just letting it go, you're like, no, I have the opportunity to tell you why that doesn't align with what I believe and what I've researched and what I know and here's why. So you can make your own informed decision. But if you don't have the basis or the knowledge, how are you going to move forward? Right. You know, certain things would, you know, in the FASD world, we used to say things like, um, and some people do, but in Canada, we have adopted a different model and language. So some of the language that was relevant at the time is that people with an FASD need an external brain, someone to be the snowplow and the guide and the support. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, mm, it kind of made my spreading senses go off, but I, I understood the concept. But then we realize now that's minimizing, right? So if someone, they, my son has a brain, he doesn't need an external brain. He needs me to be the snowplow and the advocate and the support. Leverage his strengths, help him understand his strengths, help him understand himself, but he's his own person. And I was having a conversation with someone a few weeks ago. And when I said, you know, you know we were just having a conversation and I said, oh, my son lives in FASD and I got the face. The, oh my god, Michelle, really? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I did let that one go because of the context of the meeting. But this person said, you know, and I understand that they need an external brain. And I said, I'm going to correct you on that one. My son does have a brain. And I recognize where you're coming from. The person that you worked with many years ago is, does great work. Um, and probably if you worked with that person now, they wouldn't use that terminology. And the person said, well, awesome. Thank you. Or now when I just, I want authentic conversations. I'm a big picture, big idea person. I thrive in teams where I'm the big picture person with some other really big energy people. But I love to have those fine detail people and a team with me, no matter what I'm doing, because I miss those. I'm too busy getting excited. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed as part of my advocacy is that we naturally, and it's okay, we meet people and families and we're supporting them through FASD and now we're gonna refer them to services, crucial and important. Let's get through those. But how do we stop looking at people as casework? And how do we get big picture? And to me, big picture is maybe by the time my son has a kid who's his age, we won't say, 
people will say that they have an FASD or autism or anything because it's who you are. It's not a shameful, it's not a label. It's not a label. It's a legitimate diagnosis as to who you are. But where we just are looking at how as a society, we address this so that we're not using the term inclusion, we're living inclusion, mm -hmm. right? It's not, oh, Johnny's coming over. He's the hyper kid. He's the hyper kid that constantly, like my son loved to go into people's bathrooms and turn on the faucets and their showers. I don't know why, but once something got stuck in his head, it just did. And you'd mm -hmm. be at our friend's house and you'd hear the shower and everybody would go, Owen's upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> just knew that he had gone upstairs because his brain goes, wait, stairs, bathroom, turn on the faucet. And it's just those little tweaks and support and the authenticity in conversations is so important. I don't tell my son's story to everyone, but I have a neighbor and we were talking the one day and my son plays really well with his son, but his son is much younger than my son. And so my bias, my fear is that people think, who is this weird kid? Now he is smaller for his age and he's very articulate. But if he looked like an average 12 year old, you'd be like, what the heck is that kid doing playing with my four year old? So I felt the need to disclose, but what I do now is I check myself. Am I disclosing on my own fear, my own bias, or am I doing it in the best interest of my son? Yes. And that's a really tough thing to do. And every parent with, an, uh, with a child with special needs will tell you they feel a certain way about it, and we have to honor that space. Some people feel very important that they do not share it, that their child shares it themselves. That is cool, that's 100% cool. Some people feel the need to wear it as a badge of honor and tell everybody that is cool. And I think that's when we're going to get to the real conversations of inclusion. That's where I think we're really going to get to a, a safe space for people. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's not easy for a long time. When I would talk to groups, I would very clearly state I'm an adoptive mom. So people wouldn't be like, she's the one that drank and did. And then I realized, hold up. This has nothing to do with me. And why, how dare we judge a woman who's raising a child? or not raising a child. No woman does it, in my opinion, that is my disclaimer, to intentionally mm -hmm. harm their child. And so why are we now stigmatizing the child? Because, you know, when everybody says in a divorce, you shame a parent, you shame a child. So, you know, if you're shaming your, your significant other or your former spouse or your former partner or your child's parent in front of them, so why would we do that to a birth mom? And we have to navigate that as birth moms who raise their children. I can't speak for them, but I know in having conversations, they have to navigate that with their children. And my son knows a lot of his story. Does he retain it? No, we have to repeat it a lot. But my message is I don't want him to think that there's a shame to his life, right? Mm -hmm. So I've started saying to him, you can tell people if you want to. And for the past two, three, three school years, two, three, We've gone into his class and actually read a story about FASD and told the whole class. And it was really hard for me to do that. I got really mad. And you know what stopped me? I was mad because I knew, thought, shouldn't say no, thought that the kid would go home and at the dinner, at the dinner table would say, oh, um, Owen's mom said that he has an FASD. And then they were going to assume that I drank. And because I live in a town where I went to school with a lot of people <laughs> who have kids, they're going to think badly of me. And then I was like, wow, there's your ego check your ego out the door and I'm over it now um, because Owen can advocate for himself. I don't care what people have to say, um, but that's not an easy obstacle to come to. And it was so interesting because I, a young girl at my son's school, I was told this, um, you know, we told the story and this lovely young girl, I don't know her. She came up to one of the, the staff. It wasn't my son's teachers and said, 
you know, I don't know why she would drink. She seems like a really nice lady. And that stuck in my craw because I was like, ooh, that's what my son and birth moms and all the birth moms, whether you're raising your child or not, and that's what women have to put up with, not just mm -hmm. FASD women. You know, she assumed that I was a nice lady, but I couldn't have been a nice lady if I drank alcohol, let alone drank alcohol and had a child. And that was a grade five child that said that. Wow. <clears throat> and I'm okay. If you are raised in a house where alcohol is not a good thing and you are told it's bad, that is your house. Um, but it just really made me feel heavy for women. Yeah. And just like you were saying with him and his story, just that shame that's already put into it. Yeah. And like, even for me, that's part of a goal for this podcast is just talking about those things that you might feel shame about and realizing that it's something that can be normalized and not even to the point that like, oh yeah, that's normal in an everyday, but just recognizing that those vulnerabilities can actually create more courage within us and can create better things out of it. And so those mm -hmm. conversations are so important. And even, you know, how I love that you give him the power to tell his story. And I honestly don't even remember when I was younger. Um, like I do, but I, like I was told that I was like adopted by my dad when I was younger and I was almost traumatized by it because I was like, what do you mean? He's all I know kind of thing. Yep. And then they had the audacity to tell me I was also black. And I was like, this is too much. Um, I was like, what do you mean? And this all became about because at school I was bullied for being black. And I was like, what do you, like, my parents are white. I'm not black. Like if anything, I'm a little brown, but like, and at the time I was darker than I am now. So it was just like, you know, those childhood perspectives. And I remember after that still, I felt way too much shame to ever say that I was partially adopted. And I never wanted people to be like, oh, well, then that's not your real parents and stuff like that. Because my dad is my dad. He 100%. I went to my father's cemetery and the place that he was murdered when I came out here last summer. And I called my dad right after. And I was like, I just need some love and support right now. And he talked me through it. And, you know, like, he's my dad. But people put shame automatically in those conversations and then you just don't want to have them. Yep. And I have to be very critical of that. And because our adoption was a kin adoption, um, I have to be very, very conscientious of that at all times. And I've not been perfect and I've made some mistakes, I think. Um, but I own them. Um, but I think that some of it is, um, you know, being very conscientious of, that piece of it right like i have a lot of bias because my feelings hurt for him and i also want to create a space where he can make informed decisions uh where things aren't glorified you know i feel very strongly i have always been open that he was adopted and that he didn't come from my tummy but again age and stage in fasd is a really big thing my son is 12 chronologically but you can expect him to show up as anywhere between the age of six and 12 in a variety of ways in executive functioning and emotional maturity. So, you know, he might not always, I mean, parents love him. He's exceptionally charming. Um, he's very cute. Uh, but I do have that piece where I really got worried. I got worried that I didn't want him to really find out. And this year we were driving home from picking up my husband's motorcycle in Toronto and he started asking questions. I'm like, the door is open and let's have the conversation. And I, in my mind, had made this this horrible thing. And he was totally fine with it. He was like, whoa. 
I want him to make his own decisions. I need to keep him safe. Every person's story is different. There was probably a reason why your mom didn't disclose about your biological dad. It was personal for her. It was safety for you. Everybody has their reasons. Um, and I know a lot of people who have kids and they don't, their kids don't know their biological fathers. Mm -hmm. And I think before I was an adoptive parent, I used to be a little judgy about that, or I used to really not understand it. Um, judgy in the sense that I would often agree, maybe they shouldn't know them. But then you realize as we get older, and as you watch your child grow, most people open the space for that to happen. You know, um, I wanted Owen to be able to say, and he discloses it at the most unique times that he's adopted. You know, he just throws it out there. And he watches <laughs> adults' face, and it's 2020, and you watch some moms go, oh, oh. It's like, it's a thing, but they assume things. And I, I don't tell, I mean, I put it out there for the world now that it's a kin adoption and, you know, it's not an open adoption in any way, shape or form. And there are a lot of hurt feelings on both sides and there's family drama and I don't shy away from that, but I'm going to protect him as long as I can, where he can make his own decisions. Um, but I think it's really important to have conversations. You know, I was, I am 44. I was raised in the seventies and eighties and things are very different than they are now. And, um, trying to unlearn a lot of things, even in that regard. And even in the adoption world, you know, there's a lot of people who are very pro open adoption. I admire those people so much, but I can't get to their level. It's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a variety of reasons and I own it, you know, I own it. And, and then I really came to understand, let's just respect each other's journey. I really, I'm not trying to be flippant. I don't care if you have one and I don't, and I'll put an adoption. I don't care if you have this great relationship with birth mothers. It's that's you, your journey. And I have mine and let's respect it. If we can have these conversations and respect it without judgment. Um, and then if we feel triggered or upset about something like say it, you know, yeah. I have a very close group of friends who have guided me through motherhood that I could not trade in for anything who have taught me so much. I'm fortunate that they all live very close to me, except for my bestie who went and moved pretty far away. That's like two hours. That doesn't go on. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it's just, if you don't have a circle of support, but if you don't have a circle of women, you are shooting yourself in the foot. Mm -hmm. And I agree. You get those conversations started and the space between us gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And your perspective changes, you know, I'm now questioning why people who live with an FASD aren't, aren't running a support group. We yeah. know that there are parents who live with an FASD who are raising children with an FASD and where's their space and do we include them for a variety of reasons or do we just kind of put it in the adoption population? Do we include everyone? I mean, my mind races with this stuff, but I really feel a journey and this is what Emma tapped into um, is that this is my purpose. It's my legacy that I leave behind is that I want him to feel included and I want everybody who lives with an FASD or anything, but FASD is my thing. Um, and I love, even when you said your sister uh, is exposed to this in her work, it makes my heart happy mm -hmm. because somebody else in the world, whenever I go and speak to a group, I always say, especially if they're service providers who are there for a learning opportunity, I'm like, each and every one of you in this room is warming my heart right now because each and every one of you in some way, shape or form, whether it's your job and you like it, you're going to stay. You don't want to stay. You are making a commitment today to learn how to make the world better for my kids. And so I thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a really big deal. And I think about it all the time and the conversations, I mean, the conversations you have in your podcast, they push buttons. Mm -hmm. They, you know, you have such a variety of, of guests that really push buttons and it's not to antagonize. 
it's to make people feel more secure and to make people feel more safe and create a space where we can ask questions and say things that maybe aren't the norm. Yeah. To start those conversations with people that you normally would just keep your mouth shut about until my podcast, most of my friends and any man I had ever dated didn't know that I was partially adopted. And it, it would be funny though, because then I'd have a guy come over and he'd be very confused because both my parents and my younger brother are white and they'd be like, um, am I? And I'd be like, no, you're not missing anything. And that's it. And I just felt so much shame in those conversations. And, you know, I felt like I was alone in them sometimes and things like that. And then when you have those conversations, you realize like not anyone is in your exact same shoes. Not anyone has had your experiences, your trauma, your anything to shape the perspective the same as you, but other people can have similarities and can have similar patterns. And then those ultimately help you feel way less alone and can empower you to you know, even me getting married young, I felt so much shame in that. Um, and especially because that obviously didn't end successfully. <laughs> and, um, but now like some of my closest, like Insta friends are, one of them is a woman and I admire the heck out of her. And she had gotten married similarly, very young. Coincidentally, she was older than I am now. Um, but very young to her. And she was in that long-term relationship with someone that had similar patterns to my ex-partner. And she just realized that, you know, so now she's remarried and she honors her relationship in such a beautiful way. And she said, you know, it's the commitment to grow and learn together and to recognize every day that there's other ways that you can show someone that you love them. Um, but I would have never known that about her had I not posted about it and then she not posted about it. And we would have never had that conversation. And now it's one of those, like, I'll see a post from her and I'm like, huh, like it's normal to still feel like that a couple of years later or, you know, to have those habits and patterns around those things. And so just normalizing those conversations. And like you said, a lot of these conversations and episodes can push buttons good. I hope it does. I hope it triggers you to want to learn or to at least want to talk about it. You don't have to agree. If there's something you don't agree with, talk about it with someone. I want you to have that conversation. I want you to hear other people's perspectives about it and then open that door. It's so amazing because people would say to me, you know, um, even family, it's like, well, he's fine. You can't tell anything's wrong with him. I'm like, oh, nothing's wrong with him. Right. Or on Instagram, I have found a great creative outlet. You know, I put a post up. I've had two, for me, successful posts. I don't have a huge Instagram following or anything. It's growing. It's growing quick, quickly. But I find it grows when I get really vulnerable. And I had this whole post about why I don't put my son's face on social media. I have nothing against people who do put their kids on social media. There's a part of me that wishes I could share that part of my life. But I'm honoring his privacy and honoring the fact that he doesn't understand the gravity of fact that the internet is a wide open space. My profile is open for a reason because I've created uh, a space where I can meet other parents, mostly women who I feel so connected to on the same journey and where I feel less alone and where I've been able to grow as a person. You know, I've met some amazing people in my life who have, you know, inspired me or have made me laugh or who have think like me. You meet people that really think like you online. And I put this post up and it was the most followed liked. I got the most followers off of it. I had a ton of engagement, all kinds of questions all over the world. Clearly people are thinking the same thing. Like 
I want to be on social. How do I be on social? How do I do this? I'm an adoptive parent. This isn't shame. I feel shamed about it. And I was like, holy cow. And then even a post I put up a week ago about trying to make a decision to send my son back to school. You know, I feel like this is the first time in the Instagram world that no parent is judging another parent. Mm-hmm. That is the beauty of having the conversation. If yes. I send my kid, good for you. And if you're not sending your kid, do all the best you can. My heart is with you because this is hard. And weirdly, my most followed picture was the black and white challenge that I didn't know what it was about when I posted it. Um, but I did what everybody else does. When I learned, I, I corrected, I called it out. I was vulnerable, put a picture of myself online in a bathing suit. Oh my God. I almost threw up after I hit post. <laughs> and then I was like, why am I about to throw up? Like the birds papayas in my head. Like, why, are you yeah. throw up? why can't you, why are we, why are we not normalizing this? But my message was specifically to parents like me, you carry all mothers, all women. But my message is always to my, my people, my group are women who are raising kids with special needs and you can carry a lot and be proud of yourself and show up for yourself because the best way we show up for our kids is by showing up for for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have learned that as I felt it, but I couldn't express it until I met some really amazing people on Instagram who yeah. have changed my, people say it changed your life because it's a forum where you can feel free. Oh, are there trolls? Oh, there are trolls. Are there dirty, perverted, gross people? Yep. Uh, but for the most part, it's been in a really welcoming environment. And I think these conversations, and I listen to podcasts more than I ever had before. I get challenged, I get intrigued, I push, you know, push my own dialogue, even in my own house, you know, we're very open in my house. My, my mother-in-law died in, this, in November very suddenly, and it, it, it changed my husband's life forever. And he's been able to get some really great therapy from a really amazing therapist. I've never met her. I don't know her, but I love her. Um, and you know, the conversations now we have are completely different in our house. And they are conversations that if we were having them a year ago, six months ago, five years ago, would have become fights. And now it's like, Hmm, you know, because we're closing that space between each other and understanding each other a lot better, but understanding the world around us much better, especially as it relates to our kid. You know, we all carry a lot of stuff. And I think that we are kind of trained to wear it as a badge of honor. Know, like just carry it and you know get back up in the morning and keep going and some of us can't I am someone who can't I am very people say to me oh you're so strong you're so strong I don't see myself that way I just have a way of going and then now I know when that wall has been hit mm-hmm. I just can't and I'm getting better at saying I can't you know even texting my boss and being like I can't I am struggling I'm struggling to you know be a school at home parents bring a pandemic and manage an agency or uh, I have a group of we have in our support group for FASD caregivers there are four five co-facilitators for a reason because we know things can change at the drop of a hat and we're not going to judge each other if you can't show up let me show up for you let me help you brilliant yeah just that mindfulness off the hop and even I really like that I didn't know that you guys had multiple facil- co-facilitators yeah um, I think that's so important that's... And that is the work of people. Um, my good friend, Karen Huber at FASD Waterloo Region. She is part of Development Services Waterloo Region. And she's been doing this a long time and she's figured it out. She knows that though any one of us could carry it on our own, we are a bunch of strong, intelligent women who are passionate about FASD. Um, and one male who is lovely and he is, uh, works for one of our supportive agencies, uh, service provider agencies. But we, she said, you just can't because the wheels fall off the bus fast with FASD. 
And sometimes the wheels go back on in a day and sometimes it's months. And we have to be able to check in on each other and um, be able to support each other where needed um, and create that network. And we're trying our best. We're not perfect. We only did one round. We're about to launch another round. It has to be virtual, which for me really sucks, but mm -hmm. um, we have to keep everybody safe. But yeah, it's really important. And those are conversations. Again, we wouldn't, if we kept doing everything the way we've always done it, we wouldn't know that you need a support group that's a little bit different than let's just get around and complain. I'm not saying all support groups are complaining, but yeah. if we're all going to talk about how hard the school journey is, what are we doing to make it better? Whereas the model that we came up with in Waterloo Region, and if anybody's looking for FASD information, Google FASD Ontario, all across the province there are FASD workers and wonderful, wonderful resources. If people are following and come to me on Instagram, I am happy to point people in the right direction wherever they live. The support group that we have now is we can't do things the way we've always done them. So now our support group is like we do a little bit of a seminar. So again, my area of passion is the grief and loss and leveraging strengths to get through that. Whereas I have a, a colleague who's really passionate about and very good. She's so good about talking about the transitions through different ages and stages. Mm -hmm. And we have another facilitator who's really good at self-care because that's a large part of her professional life as well. Tapping into our own strengths to support each other. So it's not just we're learning from each other. We're connecting with each other. And then we're also giving each other support. I love trying new things, making things a little, throwing a something in the mix. Mm -hmm. Having that innovation and stuff like that. And it's important, I think, even in more than just support groups, if you apply that anywhere. Like I really love where I'm working now and it's actually a long-term care facility. And I've noticed that for kind of the board of directors and the top people, everyone is cross-trained. Right now, the wellness manager, who is essentially the head of healthcare, is on vacation that she needed so badly. So I know how to do parts of her job. Our executive director knows how to do parts of her job. And the team lead for nursing knows how to do parts of her job. So that together, we can make sure that, you know, if she needs those breaks, she can take them. Our team, so she's been gone for the past week. Our team lead for nursing the one day, we're short-staffed because of COVID. Um, the t I, so I'm, I do resident services. That's my baby. Nice. That's my department. Um, that was mine too. Was it? That's awesome. Um, I love that. And so the head of, like, the lead nurse, um, she had to pull a 16-hour shift the other day because people kept calling in and we needed it. And so the importance of, okay, so she clearly needs a break. Um, obviously, it's not something that you know, if it was shift work or whatever, like they would expect you to be there the next day. Um, but we understood that in these fields and when you're working with these populations and you have that that emotional work like you're not just there physically you're there emotionally um and so we all recognized that like the next day take the day off like sleep put your feet up go for a hike in the mountains whatever you need to do we all got it we all know how to do those parts of your jobs there's other people that can take your place to help you make sure that you're maintaining yourself because it's that you can't pour from an empty cup and so recognizing that is in support groups is amazing. This is the first time in, I have a lot of job experience. It's my <laughs> first time in a job where I've noticed that in like the head management, which I think awesome. is incredible. Um, and so seeing that starting to evolve and people recognizing that when you're in these circumstances, it is emotionally tolling and you don't want to burn out and become jaded and you want to be able to provide that support 
and everyone has good intentions. I saw this post on Instagram the other day and it was like, can we normalize that sometimes we miss deadlines and respond to emails two weeks later and do stuff like that? Because I'm trying my best, but sometimes I don't always make it. And I saw that post and I was like, that is literally me. Half the time I'm responding days later and I'm like, I am so sorry. I literally saw the message was like, oh, here's my response. And then got a phone call from work or one of the kids had something or something comes up. And so just having that understanding and honoring the importance of that emotional side of things in support groups, in work, in your life is so good. It's a culture change. I worked in long-term care and retirement for many, many, many years, uh, double decades. Um, wow. And I always knew, I gravitated towards teams and agencies that were doing things a little like different and outside the box. But the last agent, the last company that I worked for, the last organization, like I say in the beginning, I miss it. Um, you cannot work in those agents in those areas unless you're called to the work. You will not be successful and you will not feel it unless you're called to it. And my, my dream was to always work with seniors. That was my goal from the time I was five with a girl guide trip to the nursing home in Rexdale. Like that was my dream. Um, it was not really a dream. I shouldn't say a dream. I just knew it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And the, the organization I worked for was spent millions of dollars in culture change journey. And they are rogue and not so much anymore. But you know, if a resident decides they're not going to be woken up at 6 a.m. to get their care done so they can be in the dining room for eight o'clock, then we don't do that. Mm -hmm. And if a gentleman is used to being shaved every day, then he is to have his beard shaved every day. And we're not going to say I didn't have time to do it. And if I have a, a I, I, listen, I was a team lead and I learned from the best. PSWs are the most underrated profession. I learned how to do great care. I learned how to dress people. I learned how to, you know, do all of those things. And I have always believed the same thing. You know, I am, nothing is above me. And so, you know, I would be ordering the toilet paper, still do it this job plunging toilets, still do that at this job, but letting everybody know, like, be vulnerable with me. Like, if you're having a hard time, let me know. If you want to try something new, let me know. Just because you have this credential doesn't mean if you want to try this, you can't. If we have to go to work every day and spend all of our days there, I want people to have the best experience. And that, that organization found me. It matched my personality really well. It's not easy work. And I have thought about those teams and everybody working in long-term care and healthcare during the pandemic uh, a lot, but it's true. It's culture change. And that has to happen everywhere. Look at what we're looking at in the Black Lives Matter. That's culture change. That's fundamental culture change. Uh, inclusion for persons living with disabilities. You know, persons with, living with disabilities have been left out of the COVID conversation. That's mm -hmm. a whole other podcast. But um, Indigenous rights and issues and colonialism, all of those things are culture change. And we're all uncomfortable right now because it has to happen and it's happening. Mm -hmm. so be a part of it in the positive way. Learn, unlearn, do what you got to do, you know, to help yourself. That's, you know, but it is, it's top down. All of it is top down. Mm -hmm. All of it. And I love even the terminology of just the culture change. That's exactly what it is. And it's so important for people to recognize that and honor that. And then it comes back to the grieving thing. Some people are used to how things have been. And that's just how things are for them. And it's always been like that. Yep. Uh, and so it's different for a lot of people. Like I know a lot of people are struggling with the adjustment and trying to figure things out and stuff like that. Um, but it's change that needs to happen. So you can either be on board or off board. There's no yep. in between anymore. Yep. You're one or the other. And people seem to think, oh, like I'm, my following's too small. 
on two feet apart, the following is so small because I half the time don't have the time or energy to promote it or do the extra. Um, and realistically, that's where the conversations are happening. And I'll post something on my stories and I'll have five different conversations in my DMs going on about it. And it's those things that, you know, you always think it's small. It's not. Every, right. every voice, like it sounds so cliche. Every voice makes a difference. Every step matters. Everything. Yep. I agree. I agree. And we're all coming into our own with it and just own it. Own where you're uncomfortable own where you're frustrated, um, you know, have the conversations. I mean, we're all grownups. And mm -hmm. even if you're not, if it's teenagers or kids, learn to have that voice. It's really important. Mm -hmm. And we're all not that far apart. No. And like and you were saying earlier, like check your bias, because that's something that I think a lot of people feel shame in. Um, because say you have this bias and you've grown up with it, then you feel the shame like, oh, I had that. Okay acknowledge you had it, honor that. Yep. How are you going to change it now that you've recognized it? Exactly. How are you going to do better? Yep. And yep, that's I agree. such yep. an important conversation to have with yourself. Yeah. Um, and so frequently I find myself doing that, even if it's just personal things with myself, I'm like, am I being biased right now? Like, is that, where's this, where's this coming from? What's the yep. lesson here? Where did I learn this? How am I interpreting it? And that's even, I choose to, you know, remember these things when I'm interacting with other people and things like that. Yeah, totally so. true. But yeah, um, I really appreciated this. This is my first podcast interview. Um, I love it. I didn't ramble at nauseum there. No, uh, it was amazing. But at any chance I have to talk about, mostly my whole passion is the FASD and showing up for yourself and showing up for, for others. Mm -hmm. If you can, and if mm -hmm. you can't, don't. Yeah. Um, and just trying to own that stuff that's made me really uncomfortable in the past couple of years, but at the same time, I feel free. Yes. And I love having these conversations, and I have them a lot, mostly on Instagram, but I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Yeah. Thank you. You were an amazing guest. Thank, thank you, you so Patrick. much. Um, just really quick, if you yeah. could let us let the listeners know where they can find and support you, and I'll sure. include any links below. Absolutely. So basically Instagram is the best place to find me. My Instagram handle is the underscore Mrs. underscore Hughes underscore the Mrs. Hughes, uh, Michelle Hughes. And uh, you can find me there. My profile is open and I welcome any and all conversations. And I really appreciate uh, people reaching out or just following or checking it out. Beautiful. Beautiful.